Lowell bring the board up here because I'm not entirely sure how far we're going to get this evening, but we will see. Okay, so uh, we are talking about the, the seven seals that are being opened currently at this point in the book of Revelation. Uh, last week we got through the fifth seal, uh, which was where we saw these people who were at the foot of the altar of God. Y'all remember that? They're at the foot of the altar or right at the bottom of the altar, kind of beneath it. And they're martyrs. They're witnesses for Jesus who have died. Um, many were killed because of their faith. Many were killed um, you know, or died a natural death, but were heavily persecuted throughout their lives. And uh, they were persecuted because of their faith. And, and what was interesting, you'll remember, is, is if we look back, they actually are crying out. We don't think of people crying out and begging and, and longing for something in heaven, but here they are in heaven, and they are crying out, and they say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, that sounds exactly like the psalm that we read earlier, right? For our psalm of the day. David was crying out, and what was he saying? How long, O Lord? So this is the cry of the, the martyrs. They're saying, God, how long until you come and vindicate us? How long until you avenge our blood? How long until you pour out your wrath upon the people of earth? And you remember how God answered them, not the way they wanted him to. But what does he do? He gives them a white robe. And he tells them to rest just a little longer. A little longer, right? That's an interesting phrase, is it not? God says, rest a little longer. Why is that interesting? Because what's a little to God? If you're infinite, what's a little? Could be a day. Could be a thousand years. As we know, it's been 2,000 plus years since John wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Are the martyrs still crying out, how long, O Lord? Yeah, they are. Is God still saying, just a little longer? Yes, He is. So that, it, it really shows us that we have to have a, a Godward perspective on this, that what might seem like a little bit of time to God is not always a little bit of time to us. So if God tells you, hey, so-and-so, wait just a little longer before you get all excited and think, all right, it's going to happen next week. Just hold on a second. God's teaching patience and perseverance. And so when we come to the sixth scroll, or we remember that, or the sixth seal, rather, we remember that these follow a pattern, right? You remember this from last week? The first five, they always occur within the, the course of human history. But with the sixth seal, or the sixth trumpet, or the sixth bowl, it always marks the end of human history. That's when things are finally coming to an end, and it's the precursor to the final judgment. And so now, right after the, the fifth seal is open, we come to verse 12, and we see that the sixth seal is going to be opened here. Look at verse 12, if you will. When he opened the sixth seal... I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it is shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll. Actually, we're going to stop 
Well, let's read verse 14. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, this signals the end of human history. This is a cataclysmic event, as you can tell here. It's an apocalyptic event, but I want you to notice how it serves as an answer to the martyr's prayer. The martyrs pray, How long, O Lord, until you vindicate us and avenge our blood? And then what's the very next thing we read right after God gives them the white robe, tells them to wait a little longer? You read, Okay, now's the time. The whole of creation is going to dissolve, and here comes the wrath of God and the judgment of God upon the earth. Now, we need to remember that the book of Revelation, what genre is it? Everybody remember from our first initial studies of this? Apocalypse, there we go. We all got there. We got there. Okay, I'm going to give that one to you. So, tip of the tongue. So it's apocalyptic. And if you remember apocalyptic genre, it often uses these wild scenes and, and very descriptive language that isn't always meant to be taken literally, but often symbolically, metaphorically, uh, in a representative type way. And this is the type of language that's used all throughout the Bible to describe what it's going to look like in the end. Right or what the results of the final of God's judgment and wrath upon the earth is going to be. This is the language that's used throughout. So Joel chapter two verse thirty one. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to write it down, the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, again, that's exactly what Revelation just said. Let's just pause and think about this for a second. I don't know if you. Uh, know this scientifically, maybe you do, what happens to us, uh, spoiler, it's not good, what happens to the people on earth if the sun goes dark? Yeah, we all die. And it's pretty instantaneous too, right? I think it'd take like something like eight minutes for us to realize there's no light. In the... So here's a fun fact for you. You can look up at the sun at any point in the day and you actually have no idea if the sun's still shining because that's how long it takes light to get to the earth. It could have dissolved eight minutes ago. You don't know. So that's just a scary thought for you to keep in your mind. But if the sun goes black, all people on earth die. That's what happens. So this might not be meaning that the sun is actually going to lose all its heat and go black because we would die immediately, but rather that darkness is going to fall upon the face of the earth, that, that light will be taken in some way. Isaiah 13.10 says, For the stars of the heaven... Uh, and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. So again, it's this picture of darkness coming upon the face of the earth. Ezekiel 32, 7. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And then Isaiah 34, 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall as the leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now that sounds almost exactly like what we read here in Revelation, right? So, so the Holy Spirit is giving John these remembrances of Scripture, and, and he's trying to pull these scenes together and try to make sense of what the end is going to look like. And again, you don't have to necessarily understand this language as literal, but apocalyptic. It's just painting a picture. Remember, Revelation is not a, a puzzle book for us to try to solve, and it's not a, a clear map of here's how we're getting from point A to point B. 
It's a picture book, and it's drawing pictures. It's supposed to make you feel something. You know, that's what a good book does. It makes you feel something. You don't always try to work out the details. When I read a book or I enjoy a movie and you just get engrossed in the story, and then someone comes and they point out a flaw in the story, and you're like, why would you do that? You know, like someone said, Indiana Jones is completely not essential to the plot of Indiana Jones at all. Like, if you remove him from the movie, the whole movie and the events therein would have still taken place. The Nazis would have still found the Holy Grail. They'd open it, they'd all die, even if Indiana Jones isn't there. I heard that, I'm like, why would you say that to me? I used to really enjoy that movie. Now you've ruined it for me, right? So when a movie, a story, a book, when a story is making you feel something, you get engrossed in it, you're not supposed to just pick out all these little details. You're just supposed to be immersed in what's happening. That's what God is doing here in Revelation. He wants you to understand. He's painting the picture. All the natural order of things, what's happening to them? They're falling apart. This good creation that God had made in the beginning, what's it doing? It's dissolving. Everything is coming undone. Why? Because God has arrived. And he is laying out his judgments upon the earth. He is pouring out his wrath upon the earth. And when that happens... Nothing is safe. Everything is going to fall apart. And notice the reaction. In verse 15 it says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the all-important question, who can stand? So so what's happening here? Uh, The first people listed on the list, they would have been especially meaningful to the original audience, right? Because what's happening to the original audience, do you remember? They're being persecuted heavily. I mean, they are being hunted down like dogs. They're being imprisoned. Many of them are being killed for their faith. And who is responsible for all this? Rome, the kings, the emperors, the rulers, the people in authority. And so it's no surprise that when God starts listing those upon whom his wrath is falling, who's listed first? The kings of the earth, the people in the high places, the generals, all those who have authority. This would have been incredibly meaningful to this original audience who were completely harassed and persecuted nonstop. But here's what's interesting. You look at this list, and depending on how you break it up, it's a sevenfold depiction of humanity. Did you notice that? There's seven. I don't have room to write there, but it's okay. So first, you have the kings of the earth, right? Second, you have the great ones. Third, you have the generals. Fourth, you have the rich. Fifth, you have the powerful. Sixth, everyone. And then seven, the last two are included together, slave and free. So you have this sevenfold depiction of humanity. Why would you do that? What's the significance there? Are numbers significant in Revelation? Yeah, highly significant, right? I mean, we're going to especially talk about that next week when we talk about the 144,000. Be here next week. You don't want to miss that one. That's going to be a fun one. Numbers throughout Revelation are highly significant, often symbolic and representative. So what does seven usually depict or represent? Completion, right? And so what would it mean or 
signify to us that God specifically lists a sevenfold description of humanity here. Yeah, it's, it's talking about the comprehensiveness of God's judgment upon the world. It is a complete judgment. No one will escape it. No one can escape it. His judgment is going to fall upon the entire earth. From people who are great, to people who are not great, to the rich, to the poor, everyone in between, this is a comprehensive pouring out of God's judgment upon the earth. And notice how it terrifies people. What is their first response? Yeah, run and hide. (laughs) They go and run and hide as soon as they realize, oh no, God actually is real. Those Christians were telling the truth the whole time. I should have listened to them. Too late now. Judgment's coming. The sun has been darkened in some way. Darkness has fallen on the face of the earth. Stars and all this calamity. Creation's coming undone. What would you do? You'd run and hide too, right? It kind of reminds me of another scene in the Bible. Anybody pick up on what's going on here? Another scene where... I don't want to give too much away. You have people who realize they mess up and their first response is to run and hide? Yeah, Tommy, theologian of the night, my man. All right. He said Garden of Eden. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? You've got parallels at the very beginning of the Bible and the very end of the Bible. What happens as soon as Adam and Eve sin against God, what do they do? They say, God, I'm sorry. We messed up. We knew we should come to you immediately because that's what we're supposed to do. We knew you're loving, you'd forgive us, but we did mess up. Is that what they did? No, what do they do? Yeah, they, they run and hide, right? They go and find some fig leaves. What was the tree mentioned here? Did you catch that? Anybody? That was a fig, right? The Bible doesn't make mistakes like that. There's some very cool, interesting things in the Bible. So they go and run and they hide and they cover themselves with fig leaves. And what's the great irony of this is <laughs> they're trying to hide from an omnipresent God. They're trying to hide from the Almighty in a bush covered by a fig leaf, and God's like, what are you doing in there? I mean, it's like when the the Tower of Babel, where they're like, oh, we're going to build a tower to heaven, and and we're going to meet God there, we're going to kick him off his throne, we're going to be God's, and God's like, i got to come out of heaven to see what's going on down there. They're doing something, but it's just hard to see. You know, you're trying to hide from an Almighty, omnipresent God. You're not going to get anywhere with that. And so they start running to the mountains, and they call out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Do you see what's happening here? They are more terrified than the wrath of God than they are of death. If only that had happened sooner, right? I mean, one of the greatest things that Christians tell other people about, non-believers about, we say, the wrath of God is coming. You are in sin You are condemned because of your sin, and unless you repent of your sin and turn to Christ, you will endure the wrath of God forever in hell. And they laugh at us. Who's laughing on that last day? No one. Because they realize it's too late and that the Christians were right. And so they see all this happening, and they literally fear the wrath of God more than... They're so terrified they can't even look at His face. That's what they're hiding from. They want to hide matters for us today. One of the first things we need to realize is that since the world and the things of this world are coming out of the things of this world, we will waste our lives because this world and everything in it is ultimately... We're going to find ourselves being like those people on that last day who were running and hiding because we don't... 
Can you tell an unbeliever Jesus is coming? And they will do anything they can. How about some parents? Think about Christian parents today. I mean, when I grew up, go to church, you know, the mom would be like, okay, that's fine, sure. Too sick to go to church, that's fine. I'm like, no, no. If there's any sort of anything that comes up, baseball game, football game, any sort of sporting event, any time the kid's just like, I'd rather go to the lake or anything. What do parents do? They just let the kids go. And then what happens? Y'all are going to get me on a rant. I told y'all not to do that, but you're going to get me there, okay? But this is what amazes me is we have adults, we have literal adults today who are absolutely shocked that we can't get young people in the church. Why don't we have any children in the church? Where are the young people? And I'm like, what about the generations that have allowed children not to be in church and haven't prioritized going to church? They haven't demonstrated what it looks like to be a Christian household at their own house. They've never read their kids the Bible. They've never prayed with their kids. They've never talked to their kids about what Jesus would do. And then we're going to act like we're shocked that they're not in the church. That's laughable, is it not? That's exactly right. It's a spiritual life. They're not investing in their child's walk with Christ. You have parents who are not reading the Bible to their kids. They're not praying with their kids. They're not talking to their kids about Jesus. They're not prioritizing the church. They never have their kids in church except when nothing else, literally nothing else is going on, and they can fit it into their schedule. And then their kids go off to college. They renounce the faith, and they never darken the doors of a church again. And the parents go, I don't know what happened. I do. I know exactly that this world and your child's worldly ambitions and pursuits were worth more than Jesus. That's exactly what happened. You want to blame society, you want to blame the education system. What we don't want to do is point the finger back at ourselves and say, maybe I should have been a better parent. Maybe I should have actually invested in my children more and invested in their eternity more and in their souls more because now I'm never going to have them in my house again and I don't know that they're ever going to be in God's house again. It's exactly what we're seeing here. This world and the things of this world are passing away, and yet we've got entire generations of people who are telling their children, pursue your dreams at all costs. Pursue your ambitions at all costs. Even if it takes you out of the church, even if it takes you away from Jesus, you follow your heart. And then one day they're going to stand before Jesus, and Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. And the fact that that doesn't terrify parents the fact that they would rather not hurt their kids' feelings than have that happen? I can't imagine that. I cannot imagine Judah or Ezra standing before Jesus and Jesus saying to either one of them, I never knew you. Because if that's the case, that's on me as a parent. So there goes, that's my, y'all got me worked up, but okay. The whole point of that is that this world is passing away. And the things that we're teaching people to pursue and invest in and care about, they are not going to matter one iota in eternity. You think God is ever going to check someone's batting average in eternity? How many touchdowns he scored? How many places he visited on earth? None of that's going to matter one bit. The only thing that's going to matter is, did you know Jesus? Did you repent of your sins and trust in Christ? Another thing that I do want you to take away from this passage is that there's a call to perseverance here. 
a big call to perseverance. Because, I mean, again, think about the people to whom this letter was originally written. They're suffering. I mean, they're being persecuted night and day, day after day. And they were persecuted at the hands of corrupt leaders, government, people, and authority. And we still experience that today, don't we? I mean, we still have all sorts of corrupt government, corrupt leaders, people in authority. And they're often the reason for our persecution. And, and really, a lot of that times, it's because they're just changing the rules constantly. They're calling someone by the wrong pronouns. That's where our world is at today. You can look at someone and go, hey, I know how to tell the difference between a boy and a girl. That's a boy. You say, sir, can I help you today? And that person says, I'm not a sir. You've misgendered me. And now I'm going to call the cops. And because you call me by the wrong pronouns and whatever else, I'm going to have you arrested. And that actually happens in our world today. And it's a denial of truth. For all of human existence, people have said, all right, there are boys and there are girls, and we know the difference between them, and then we call people what is appropriate for their gender. And now the world has said, don't you dare do that. Don't you act in accordance with the truth. Don't you speak in accordance with the truth, because if you do, we're going to put you in jail. Because now truth is subjective, and we get to determine what is true and what's not true, and we get to determine who is going to abide by our truth and not our truth. And if you don't follow our rules, well, guess what? You're going to be put in jail. It's like I can't even keep up with the rules anymore. They're constant. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, what I'm not supposed to do. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to call this group and that group and anything. I mean, all the rules are always changing. It's, it's like playing a game with a toddler. It's frustrating, right? I mean, the other day, the boys and I, we were outside. We were hitting some golf balls, and I found a PVC pipe. I staked it in the ground, and I said, all right, boys, we're going to play a game called Closest to the Pin. Now, Ezra... He had to steal every club that I had, the adult clubs, even though they have kid clubs. So he's holding an adult club. I've got one. Judah's got kid clubs, right? And I was like, all right, closest to the pin. Here's how the game works. We're going to hit a chip shot, and it's real simple. Whoever gets it closest to the pin wins. Judah's all excited, right? So I hit one, get pretty close. Judah hits one, and it goes 20 feet past the pin. I'm like, all right, I win. And he goes, no, 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 Daddy, wait. We're playing whoever hits it farthest wins. <laughs> I'm like, well, huh hold on, that's not the game that we agreed to. And he's like, well, that's what we're playing. So I was like, okay, fine. So I hit my ball again, and it goes further than Judah's ball. Well, what does he do? He takes off running to his ball, and he goes, I got to my ball first, I win. That's what we were playing. I'm like, hold on a second. I, I realized, I was like, I'm never going to win because the rules are just going to keep changing to where he wins. And that's exactly what it feels like in our world sometimes, is it not? I'm never going to win. Because the government and the leaders and the rulers, they keep changing the rules so that they're always winning, and we're not. And I mean, I know that we're living in, a, in America where we're not suffering too much, but people are trying to determine what we can and cannot say. I mean, I've had sermons getting taken off YouTube and Facebook because it doesn't abide by community standards. Yeah, Michael, thumbs up for that. Praise the Lord. I, I was a badge of honor if I don't abide by community standards, so... But they're, they're, you've got publishers now who aren't publishing Christian books. You have Amazon taking Christian books off, off their website. You have California who is trying to ban Christian books. I mean, they are literally trying to change the rules constantly about what we can and cannot do. And meanwhile, we've got brothers and sisters all across this world who are actually suffering real suffering, who are still being persecuted and hunted down, who are being imprisoned for their faith, who are being killed for their faith. And it's easy when that happens. How many times does that happen? And we get frustrated, right? Anybody in here have been frustrated by the government? No, not this group, right? Never. 
You ever been frustrated at, at how the country is going? What the leaders are saying? What people are doing and allowing? I mean, you've got government officials now who are, who are participating in pornography and making sex tapes, and they're just trying to play it off now like, that's fine. You know, you're just getting a buck. I mean, it's easy to get frustrated, right? And especially if you're in those countries where you're being persecuted and killed for your faith, it's easy to want to give up and say, well, this isn't worth it. I mean, that's what David was saying in that psalm. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to allow this to continue? So the martyrs were saying. It's what the people in the first century were thinking. And what we see here is that one day God is going to make all things right. That he will vindicate the righteous. That his judgment is coming. And there will be no more evildoers. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more sin. The judge of all the earth will do right. And so it's a call to perseverance. Keep pressing forward. Keep trusting Christ. Keep praying and praying and praying and saying, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Vindicate the righteous now. So it's a call to perseverance. The last thing, very quickly, that I want to just tell us to take away is this passage reminds us that the end could happen at any time. At any time. That we've talked about the fact that the first five seals, they've already been opened, they're going on in our world now. You know what comes after five? Six. It could happen at any time. And for those who have not trusted in Christ, it's a reminder not to waste the time. To turn from your sins now and turn to Jesus today. For those who have trusted in Christ, listen to me, church. For most of you here, if not everybody here, it's a call to be missional. Because one day, Jesus is returning. And at that point, that's the end. (laughs) There is no second chance. There is no other opportunity. And he is given the responsibility to share the gospel message to the church. We are to go and tell others, this is actually going to happen. That God says that you have sinned against Him, you stand condemned before Him, and He is returning one day. He's going to pour out His judgment upon all the earth, and not a single soul will escape it. You will run, you will hide, but you will still face the wrath of God unless you turn from your sins now and trust in Jesus for salvation. When you see Him coming, it's too late. (laughs) You you can't make a decision then. And like the rich man who who said, well, if I had known this, if I had known that, well, maybe I could have done something better. Let me go and tell my family members, and if they listen to me, then then maybe they'll, they'll change their mind now. And Jesus said, listen, they've got the word of God. They wouldn't even believe it if a dead man came back and told them. And so it's a call for the church to take seriously the fact that we've got billions of people in our world who are dying without knowing Jesus. And this passage says that one day when he returns, he is going to pour out his wrath. And that's not a time of rejoicing for the church. Because we're going to see people that we talked to. See people that we worked with. See family members. People that we refused to say anything to because we didn't want an awkward conversation. Because we didn't want to hurt someone's feelings. I would rather offend everybody on this earth than be responsible for not telling someone about Jesus and then having to watch them suffer the wrath of God. I would hate to find out that I was supposed to be the one to witness to someone and I didn't do it and so they never heard about Jesus. It's a call to be missional.
If you have unbelieving friends and family members and neighbors, God has put you in their lives for a reason. So go and tell them about the great grace of God so that they don't suffer the great wrath of God. All right, we'll get to the seventh, actually the rest of the sixth seal next week and uh, talk about the 144,000. And it's a fun week. I encourage you not to miss next week because next week's going to be real fun. So uh, how about Gene McKinney? Give us a word of wisdom as we close.